rest of you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation chapter 3 this morning, finishing up uh, the next couple weeks, the letters to the seven churches. And then, as I mentioned last week, we'll take a small break in the book of Revelation to uh, look at what it means to be made in God's image, what it means, uh, the, the doctrine of the Imago Dei, being made in God's image, and how does that affect uh, all of the issues that our world faces today in which we are asking the question of what does it mean to be human? Um, and so we're going to walk through some of those things uh, for about a month or so, and then we'll get back to Revelation. So uh, we'll be in Revelation for a while. I joked earlier we'll be in Revelation until Jesus returns, but not really. Uh, but just for a while, but we'll, t- we'll take little breaks as we walk through that uh, together. So, well, with uh, changing technology and rise of social media and all sorts of things, all sorts of industries have popped up in light of those things. And one of those is this thing called reputation management. Uh, there's really a whole industry designed at repairing and uh, covering up uh, misfortunes of your reputation online. Uh, whole industries that exist where you can meet with a consultant and they look at your online uh, profile or whatever and try and bury stories that are negative of you and promote stories that are positive of you. This whole reputation management is what it's called. It seems really odd. Managing your reputation. Sometimes, as the church, we function in reputation management. We are more concerned about how we as the church, or we as individual Christians, look to the world, more concerned about our reputation of these things than the actual character and following of the Lord, our actual character and our actual following of the Lord and living it out. And this is really the question that Jesus asked to the church in Sardis. Not will you have a good reputation, but will you live? Will you actually live? Not be concerned about your reputation, but be concerned about being alive spiritually. So let's read Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and we'll walk through this passage together. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do. And that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for what even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you have heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Now remember, the, the way in which this, uh, these letters function is that John is, is uh, writing to these churches, and, and really the, these seven churches are the audience for the whole book of Revelation. It's a circular letter that's going to be passed along these seven churches. 
And this introduction kind of introduces all the themes of the book, all these little letters. And remember, it's seven because that's the number for universal. And so it's really addressing the whole of the church. And this is Jesus speaking through John to these churches and speaking about individual things that's happening in those churches. The letters begin with a portion of the vision that John had of Jesus at the beginning of Revelation and then moves on to commending them for something good they're doing and then challenging them, giving some sort of complaint that they're not showing up in some way and giving them a challenge and then finally encouraging them with a promise. Now, you may have noticed this letter does not commend the church in Sardis for anything. It does commend a portion of the church later on, but it does, it does start a little differently. It starts maybe a little bit harsher in the way that it works. And he says at the very beginning, I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. This word reputation is, is the, the Greek word for name. And it's going to show up again later. There's a little bit of a play on words here, but they have a name. They're known for these things, and they're living off of this name. They're living off of this reputation. Well, what would, for the church in Sardis and for us today, what does faith in Jesus by name only look like? That's the reality of what we're talking about. They have a faith in Jesus that is in name only. They appear to be alive spiritually, but Jesus says you're actually dead. You're actually not Alive, you're dead, or nearly dead, right? He, he goes on to say that they're nearly dead. What does faith in Jesus by name only look like? Well, I think there's two things that he highlights here, two ways in which the church can function by name only. First, he says, your actions do not meet the requirements of God, my God, right? I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. And he can see all things, right? He says at the beginning, I can see these things. We saw this last week, too, when he says, I can see even your intentions and the thoughts of your heart. So he can see all these things. He says, the actions that you have do not meet the requirements of my God. Later, he says, there are some in the church in Sardis who have not yet soiled their clothes with evil. So there are these two sort of things. Your actions do not meet the requirements of my God, and some of you have soiled your clothes with evil. Now, soiling clothes with evil is really uh, sort of uh, uh, figurative language for the things that we've been talking about kind of throughout this whole section in Acts, or I mean, not in Acts, sorry, in Revelation. This whole section about these churches has been uh, the reality of them compromising their faith with the culture around them. They've compromised with idol worship. They've compromised on various things. So there is the, the soiling of the clothes, which is a compromise in the truth, a compromise of orthodoxy, meaning rejecting the truth of God and embracing false beliefs. There's also the other compromise that he talks about is not uh, living up to the requirements of my God. It's a compromise in orthopraxy, right? Orthodoxy means right teaching, Orthopraxy means right practice. And there's a compromise in orthopraxy, meaning they're not living out the love of God and neighbor in action. So there are 
two ways in which a church can live by name only and actually be functionally dead. That is, to compromise by not living the truth of God in the world in action and love of neighbor. And the other is to compromise on the truth of God and to embrace false beliefs. Both are a compromise. The reality is the church of Jesus Christ requires both orthodoxy, right, belief, and orthopraxy, right, living, right, practice. Both are necessary. And the question to the church in Sardis and to us is, will you live? That's a quick answer, John. Not the right one either, right? The the question is, will you live? The answer should be yes, right? We want to live, right? The reality is, will you live? This implies that if you have one of these, orthodoxy without orthopraxy, functionally dead. And if you have orthopraxy without orthodoxy, you're functionally dead, right? Because he mentions these two ways in which you can compromise in the way that you live or in the way that you believe. This implies if you have one of these but not the other, you are nearly dead, the church in Sardis. Now, in our culture, currently, I don't know if you saw, there was a a Pew Research study that came out recently that said, I think it was by 2070, uh, Christians will be a minority in the U.S. if current trends continue. No longer in the majority, but in a minority. And most of this is due to switching from Christianity to uh, not being affiliated, uh, what sociologists call nuns, uh, not nuns as in, you know, Catholic nuns who are praying, right? That would be a different kind of switch. Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns, meaning no affiliation. Now, when they dig a little deeper in that, that doesn't mean no belief in God, but no formal affiliation with the church. Now, there's a lot of theories as to why this would be the case. Our culture is Becoming more and more secular, uh, this has happened kind of throughout the world and uh, in various seasons of, of history, and there's this rise of the nuns, and what does that mean for the church? Lots of churches have closed, doors, what, what, what's the cause of these things? Now, there's, there's various theories that Christians and, and thinkers are, are putting out to why the church is experiencing this. Uh, one option, one theory is that the church has been liberalized uh, theologically and adopted a secular view of humanity, sexuality, universalism, all of these things. And you can see this kind of play out in mainline denominations who have embraced some of these things and actually have declined pretty rapidly. So there's some validity to, to maybe that piece of it. Uh, On the flip side, uh, a lot of folks are arguing now that it's actually what's causing the rise of the nuns is actually a strong fundamentalism that exists within the church and a lack of love. That the church, that lots of people are leaving the church because they experience a lack of love for neighbor and a strong fundamentalism that, that comes out in judgment and hatred towards neighbor. What if both are true? What if actually... The reason the church is struggling with some of these pieces is because of a losing of orthodoxy in some places and a losing of orthopraxy in other places. What if it's very similar to the reality in Sardis? 
that there's a lack of orthodoxy and a lack of orthopraxy together, and that is what makes people question the church and the claims of Christ and the, the truth of the Bible and all of these pieces. Oftentimes, if you have conversations with folks who have left the church, who have been burned by the church, who have, are questioning and doubting and are, are, are walking away from the faith, it's because of some experience in both of these directions. Uh, some experience in which they've begun to question some of the teaching of the church and embrace some other view of humanity or whatever, salvation or, or any of these things, and then that begins to erode their faith in the church and all of the things that the church teaches. Others have experienced very real pain and judgment and hurt at the hands of the church, and so they are wondering, do they love? They say that they love. They say that the, the chief thing that they do is love. They say that the chief commandment is to love God and love neighbor. But my experience is not that. I don't witness that. I don't see that. I don't see them loving their neighbor in the community. And I don't see them loving me in the church. And so they begin to question the faith and walk away from the church because of those things. What if it's the, the lack of conviction that leads to radical love that causes people to walk away from the church. It could be both of these things, right? James kind of highlights this in James 1, 27. He says this, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. See, James is keying in on the exact same thing that Jesus says to the church in Sardis. Not soiling your clothing, right? Not being corrupted by the world and its teaching. Not losing orthodoxy. But also caring for widows and orphans. Caring for the marginalized. Caring for the poor. Caring for those who need our help the most. Loving our neighbor. Both orthodoxy and orthopraxy together. Now James goes on to talk about this. And I think this is really fitting for exactly what Jesus is highlighting to the church in Sardis. James goes on and James 2 says this, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, Goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. You see, so you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road just as the body is dead without breath so also faith is dead without good works 
All right, now I'm guessing if you have read the book of James before, or if, if this is the first you're hearing of this, and particularly if you've been involved here at the church for a while, you're thinking, wait a second, this makes me a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> Did he say faith alone does not save? Isn't that a hallmark of the Reformation? Isn't that a hallmark of what we believe here as a church, that faith alone saves? How is this, how is this compatible with what Paul would say, which is that we are saved by faith alone? How are these things compatible? Is it faith alone or is it faith plus works? What is, the, what is the reality? Well, I would say that James and Paul are actually addressing two different questions. This is why they sound differently. For Paul, the question is, what will save you? In Romans, in particular, where the question is, what, what possibly can save? Well, only the blood of Jesus can forgive sins, and only faith in Jesus can save. And it's only faith and faith alone because no one can do enough good deeds to earn their righteousness before God. Even James's quote of Abraham says that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul uses that exact same phrase to say that it is faith alone that saves. So it is only faith that can save. James' question is different. James' question is not what can save you. James' question is what kind of faith is saving faith? What kind of faith is saving faith? Because I can say anything. I can say I have faith in Jesus, and I might live on that reputation alone. Just like those in Sardis. Just like those in Sardis, where Jesus says, I see you, and you live by this reputation. You live by this name of faith, but you don't really have that faith. James's question is, what kind of faith saves? What does saving faith look like? How do we tell what saving faith is? And James says, the way in which we tell what saving faith is, is it produces love in action. Saving faith always produces love in action. So if there's a lack of love in action, the question is not, can I do more actions to save myself? The question is, did I actually experience the gospel? Do I have any faith at all? Or am I dead? that's what James says, that's what Jesus says, right? Faith without works is like a body without breath. It's dead. It's not a real thing. It's not alive. Does it actually affect what I do, who I am, how I spend my time, my money, my resources, how I love? Does it affect concerns of justice? Racism and sexism and concern for the marginalized, concern for the unborn, for the poor, the broken, the addicted, the incarcerated, the enslaved, the widow, and the orphan. Is it rooting out hatred in the church? There's no place in the church for hating anyone, no matter their lifestyle, attitude, political affiliation, race, gender, income. None of those things are means or are grounds for us to hate anyone in the church or outside the church? Do we actually believe in Jesus who came to die for all kinds of folk, for all kinds of people? Do we actually believe that? Because if we actually believe that, then our life will look like we actually believe that. You know, you know when you uh, leave Walmart sometimes, there's the greeter there and they're like, hey, let me see your receipt. Right? 
Because you got to prove that you actually bought this stuff that you're walking out with. Jesus and James are both saying, let me see your receipts. You say that you have saving faith, but let's see if it's true. Let's see if it's real. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was granted righteousness because of his faith. You know how he proved it? He was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac on the mountain because God told him to. That's how he proved that he actually believed God's promise. Why, why, why would that prove that he believed God's promise? Because God's promise to him was, you're going to have descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Do I actually believe God is able to do that? So much so that I'll sacrifice my only descendant? Hebrews says that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. Abraham saw something he hadn't seen yet. Jesus walking out of the tomb. God can raise the dead. So yes, I do believe him completely. If we believe that Jesus really walked out of the tomb, that we're really saved by faith alone, that we're really headed to an eternity in the new heavens and new earth where we gain the whole earth, do we live like that's true? Like this isn't our home. So I can generously give of all my things to those in need. So I can generously love my neighbor so that I can engage my neighbor who the world tells me I should hate, that we shouldn't get along because we disagree on any number of things. Can I actually care about them because they're made in God's image and show up and not judge them from afar? Can I actually know their name and their story and their background? Do I actually care or am I so concerned about myself? Am I so concerned that I have a good reputation? A reputation that doesn't look like, wait, why is he hanging out with those folks? Those folks believe different than he does. I gotta protect my reputation, right? Jesus, Jesus wasn't concerned about that. Jesus showed up at the parties in which it was like, oh, that dude is definitely soiling his clothing over there, right? Except Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what's happening. I am coming to bring purity here. I'm coming to affect reality here. I'm coming to love those who are far from me. Does it actually affect us? Because here's the thing. Jesus says, I have the sevenfold spirit. Remember, it's not that, the Holy, that there's all of a sudden like the Holy Spirit isn't the Holy Spirit and there's seven of them, right? Seven means fullness again. I have the fullness of the Spirit. And you, Sardis, you, City Hope, you bear my name when you claim to follow Jesus. This isn't me. This isn't City Hope. This is Jesus saying, you, when you claim faith alone in Jesus, you bear my name. So let's not live by the reputation of bearing my name. Let's live like you actually bear my name. Let's believe like you actually bear my name. Let's live out like you actually bear my name. This is our call. Guys, here's the reality. In the midst of right now, I think certainly there is always the threat. We talked about it last week, false teaching. There's always the threat of us losing orthodoxy. But in our theological tradition, our threat is less of losing orthodoxy and heavily on losing orthopraxy. 
Because we have large sections of our history as a church that is like orthopraxy wasn't even a thing. Like we were dead or nearly dead, right? And that's still a threat for us. And here's the thing. In the midst of that, in which many people are leaving the church and many people are running away because of the way in which the church has functioned in their lives or not functioned in their lives, it's really simple. We just can't be jerks and actually have to just love Jesus and other people. Like the call is not anything outside of ordinary means. When Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis, you're nearly dead, will you live? He's not saying, will you do some extraordinary thing? Will you raise up all the money to wipe out all the medical debt for everyone in your city? That's not what he says. Now, that would be a good thing. That would be awesome. What he's saying is, will you go back to what you originally heard? Will you go back to what you originally heard and cling to it? Love God, love neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. Will I actually be challenged to love my neighbor? To love my enemy? To love those who persecute me? Because he says in this, you will have victory. Those who have victory will be clothed in white. And what will happen? They will get a name. Actually, they already have a name. Their names are already written in a book. They're written in the book of life. And Jesus himself will acknowledge that before his father. You see the play on this? You're living off of this reputation, this name. But your name is already written in the book of life. Live in that. It's already there. Victory is not in getting power or getting to live freely without persecution or not having to be taught any opposing worldviews ever. Victory is loving in spite of anything that comes. That's consistent throughout the whole book of Revelation, right? They were victorious because they witnessed and loved not their lives even unto death. They were victorious because they witnessed to the good news of Jesus even unto death. It's loving in spite of anything that comes against us, representing Jesus, clinging to our belief in Jesus' orthodoxy, and loving and living it out in orthopraxy. This is the reality. Why would we do that? Well, because Jesus has already named us and written us in the book of life. Now, you may be thinking, how can we do this? How, how would the church in Sardis do this? When Jesus says to them, will you live, what is he expecting of them? How is he expecting them who are nearly dead to come to life? How do we expect, as we look across the American church landscape, our own church, our own theological tradition, which maybe suffers from orthopraxy at times, other theological traditions which might suffer from orthodoxy, as we look at all of that, we might say, well, it looks nearly dead. It looks bleak. It looks bleak at times. How could a church nearly dying come back to life? How can an individual who's gotten it wrong so many times, an individual believer here seated, who's gotten it wrong so many times either on orthodoxy or orthopraxy, how could we come to life? How could we possibly do this? 
Do we need some reputation management? Do we need to just hide the things that we've done that aren't good and highlight the things that we've done that are good? Oftentimes, this is the church's answer. Let's just not talk about those things that we did wrong. Let's just hide all that stuff. Let's not talk about it. Let's talk about the good things we've done. Look, I know we're weak on orthopraxy, but look at our orthodoxy. Look at all the books I have. Look at the theologians I can quote. Look at all this stuff, right? Or look, I've got orthopraxy. Look at all the good deeds I do. It doesn't matter that I don't believe Jesus actually rose from the dead. That doesn't matter. Only this matters. Jesus says, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. You have my name. I matter. You have my name. So you have to bear my name in actuality. No, what we need is repentance. Not reputation management. We need repentance. We need repentance. What does he say? Repent and turn to me again. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. Guys, repentance is the greatest gift of the Lord to us. We simply can turn and say, no longer am I headed in this direction. I repent. I want to head in this direction. Lord, forgive me, and let's walk together. That's it. That's all it takes. This reminded me, the, the way in which Jesus speaks, reminded me of a scene in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel sees this vision. And remember, all of Revelation is really keying in on all these Old Testament visions and folding them into this reality of speaking about who Jesus is and what he's done. The Lord took hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, Son of man, can these bones become living people again? O sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones. and Say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. So I spoke this message just as he told me. Suddenly as I spoke, there was a rattling noise across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. Then as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones. Then skin formed to cover their bodies, but they still had no breath in them. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath from the four winds, breathe into these bodies so that they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. They all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. And he said to me, son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying we have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, O my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will live again and return home to your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. We may look out, you may look out over your life 
You may look out over the church. You may be here just really discouraged about the state of the church or maybe watching online because you can't even come because you're, you're afraid of the church. You may look out and see that the church is just a valley of dry bones. How could it possibly live again? How could it possibly love again? How could it possibly hold fast to the truth of Jesus again? Are we too far gone? We run away too much. See, the grace of the gospel is that God says, by my spirit, you will live. You see, the answer is not, go do more good works. You know, in Titus, what Paul says in Titus is, if you want the people to do good works, tell them they're saved, not by good works. Tell them the gospel. You know why? Because that produces good works. That produces the life of faith. The answer is Jesus speaks to the church and says, by my spirit, you will live. You can have life. Repent and trust in Jesus, and he will grant you life. How can a church nearly dead come to life? By the spirit of God, which is exactly what Jesus said, right? What what John highlights of Jesus in the vision is, I'm the one with the sevenfold spirit. I'm the one who speaks. Ezekiel, son of man. Wait, 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 who's the true son of man? Jesus, son of man. Speak and give the spirit to the church. Speak and give the spirit to the church so that they become alive. This message isn't for all the churches out there, guys. This is for us. This is for City Hope, because the reality is we're always in places where we're nearly dead, where we need to repent anew, where we need to repent and trust Jesus again and experience the Spirit with us and live out the life of faith. It's not about those who so easily get this wrong. You know what that's like? That's like Sardis and living on faith alone, or on reputation alone, living on name alone. It's easy for us to say, no, 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 we care about issues of justice and mercy. Look at how many times we talk about it. We've got a reputation for being a diverse church that cares about justice and mercy. Do we do it? That's the question. It's not, do we care about it? Do we live it out? Is that real for us? Are we really alive? Are we really doing it? Don't live by reputation, friends. Live by repentance. Live not by reputation, but by repentance. Because when we repent, mercy is granted to us, and it is oh so sweet. The mercy of God is granted to us. We don't want to live by the reputation of being a church that never has gotten anything wrong. We want to live by the reputation of being a church that repents. Trust Jesus. No matter what it is, we want to repent and trust Jesus, not live by reputation. Because our God has conquered the grave, we don't have to earn our salvation. We don't have to try and manufacture this thing. We can do this because Jesus has already done it in our place. Because Jesus, the one with the sevenfold spirit, says, I have already given you my name. Because I went before you and died in your place 
and rose from the dead so that any and all who trust in Jesus can be, can come to life. This is the question for us. Will we live? Will we live by repenting, trusting in Jesus? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you now, and we want to trust you. And yet, Lord, we admit that it is really hard to trust you, that often we get this wrong, that often we lose spaces in which we run away from orthodoxy or run away from orthopraxy, and we need to repent so that we can live again. So God, would you grant that to us, Spirit, would you be at work, not just in us, but in the church, universal, that we would be a place that the Spirit lives and that we would live. Jesus, would you do this for your glory, we pray in Christ's name.